Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. This is part two of our conversation with Dave McCoggan. Dave is a marketing thought leader and storyteller. He has spent the last three decades in Asia Pacific, leading strategy planning in senior management roles with McCann, one of the world's most successful advertising agencies. He joined McCann in 1986 in his native Sydney, where he built the strategic planning function, and since 1995 has been based in Bangkok, Hong Kong, and Tokyo, leading regional strategy and communications campaign development for clients like Coca-Cola, MasterCard, Nestle, Cathay Pacific, Sunstar, Hitachi, Johnson & Johnson, and many others. In 2015, Dave launched Bibliosexual, which works with brands to bring together his long-term passion for understanding the relationship between form and content. In this episode, we continue the discussion talking about Japanese consumer trends, youth marketing, and how it has changed over the years, product placement, and decision fatigue. Dave then shares his thoughts on how brands should pay attention to older consumers in Japan, a category with growing influence and purchasing power. And finally, we do a deep dive into the topic of toilets and how Dave got involved with them. Enjoy. Mobile games. Seriously, mobile games. That's where the eyeballs are. That's where the thumbs are. That's where the, in the engagement is. There's been a lot of talk around the world about the, the attention economy. Todd, you probably remember us talking about the t- attention economy 15, 20 years ago, right? It's sort of come back in a huge way in the last 12 months because of that realisation that when we're all locked at home and sitting in our houses for two months or three months or five months, it seemed like it was easy to get people's attention, right? Because they had nothing else to do. Now they're out. Well, the truth is... That if you want to get people's attention, young people, particularly in Asia, the thing they're paying attention to is the screen on their mobile phone and they're playing games on it. So get in there. The idea of placing products inside games is not you. We've been doing that and we've been buying the rights to do that for 20, 25 years. That's, that's not a big deal. It's the thing like the in-game chat boards. For most young people in Asia, the number one social mediums are the in-game chat boards. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Talk to us about the waves of change that the waves of trends. If you can pick out maybe one, two, three over the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years that has brought us to where we are today in Chinese consumers. Can you point to a couple of things that really did move the goalposts more than other things? Sorry, Japanese consumers. Japanese consumers. Well, I think what happened was 1989, there was the famous crash. Um, And so, you know, in the 80s, if you watched uh, Western movies made in the 80s, uh, American Hollywood movies, there was a big theme that Japan was about to overtake the world, right? Um, It was going to buy out everything. Um, And then 1989 happened and the stock market in Japan crashed 
um, there was a huge upheaval amongst the big corporations. Um, and what really happened and what really mattered was that you had um, a generation that had by that stage grown up post-World War II in constant sort of success. So, you know, you had 1964 with the uh, Tokyo Olympics was a major, major uh, event in, for Japan, if globally, but for Japan, right? And inside Japan, um, you know, they purposely opened the famous bullet trains. They were open to be prepared for the things. Uh, the robot factories uh, were all set up and running for 64, right? You had this major push, right? So this is, we're back sort of thing, right? And then you go forward 25 years. So you've had 25 years to late 1989 and a whole generation has then grown up and gone to work and been successful and you've seen constant economic growth, constant economic growth. And the property prices have gone through in Tokyo and places like that have gone through the roof, you know, and salaries are through the roof and expense accounts are through the roof. And it was ridiculous. I mean, if you'd ever been to Tokyo in the mid, late 80s, it was just unbelievable the, the amount of money that, you know, was getting spent in bars. Unbelievable, right? Then 89 happens. And suddenly you've got that generation who are now sort of early middle-aged workers who suddenly, well, their careers in a sense stopped. The, the, they didn't necessarily lose their jobs, but they didn't see the incremental growth year after year after year. They saw it flatlined. You had their own kids who might have been in the you know late teens, early 20s, you know, ending high school, going to college, looking for jobs, who suddenly it wasn't about the fact that we're going to be kings of the world. It's going to be, well, we're going to manage. We're going to manage. So you had this big change, and that changed the way in which Japan itself looked upon itself, and it took. It, it, it's still, in a sense, still recovering from that. It, it, it's still discussed inside that about you know, like, oh, you know. Now think about it. That's a long time ago, in in one sense, right? I mean, uh, you know, thirty something years ago, when we're still sort of recovering from that. So that was that was a big issue. Um, at the same time, what you also had was the aging of the population. So Japan is famously now as the oldest country in the world or whatever, right? And But the fact is that we've known this for 30 years, that it's coming. We knew that it was ageing faster than most countries. The, the number of kids per family was shrinking, shrunk dramatically very quickly. Um, they started shrinking as a population nearly 10 years ago, right, Um and so there are actually fewer Japanese. And the, the joke was about, oh, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, one of the Japanese uh, uh, government departments actually, actually issued a thing, and it said something like, well, in the, in the year 2,643, the last Japanese person will die, right? Because they, being Japanese, they'd sort of figured out, you know, like at the current rate of decline, this is how long it's going to take, right? Um, but but and a long time in the future. But the fact is that that's also played a big part in things, right? The, the dual thing, you have fewer proportionally fewer younger people and you have a lot more older people. And so that, that puts a lot of stress on things and it's changed the dynamic that we're seeing in a lot of other countries and a lot of Western countries and a lot of other developed countries. But Japan has led the way in terms of the dynamic that a 40, 45-year-old woman, her just at the point where her own kids are probably finishing high school, maybe going to college or looking for a job. And so she might be getting them less dependent on her, but 
her own parents and in-laws are only in their 60s and will have another 30 to 40 years to live. And probably three or four of their parents are alive in their 80s. And this 40, 45-year-old woman has got to take care of them as well for the next 10, 20 years, right? So typically, if you're a sort of middle-aged Japanese couple, um, you have something like 9, 10, 11 parents and grandparents that are going to be around for somewhere between 20 and 40 years. And you're going to be the one that is sort of having to organise their life or help them organise their lives more and more. So that changes that dynamic pretty dramatically in terms of the way people have to think about things, think about them. And that's why Japanese people post-89 have remained, there's these continual waves that force them to be cautious, force them to be cautious about the future, about what to do, what to buy, how to invest, those sorts of things. Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to start going into Southeast Asia, Asia in general, and we'll segue into that talking about youth because you're a bit of an expert in marketing to youth, um, which can be pretty tricky. They're slippery buggers, we might say. Uh, And uh, any one day to the next, you know, their taste and preference and consumer habits can change as fast as technology will allow them to to be able to change them. So um, just broadly speaking, um, how, how do you see the changes in, in marketing to youth across Asia, Japan and beyond Thailand, however, uh, wherever you want to kind of point to talk to us a little bit about how youth uh, marketing to youth is different, is difficult and how it's changed. Sure. Um, again, one of the, one of the misconceptions that I often find amongst Western companies when the, if they're not, heavily involved in Asia um, or Western business people um, is, of course, if you walk into Bangkok, where I live, Kuala Lumpur, Hong Kong, Tokyo, Seoul, um, you're going to see the cinemas have all the blockbusters. You know, Marvel movies are are massive all across Asia, right? Everybody's got a favourite Marvel character, right? Um, but what you've got to remember that there's a parallel world going on. So, you know, one of the misconceptions is, is, yes, Hollywood movies are very successful, but there's a lot of other stuff that's really happening in terms of popular culture, popular entertainment. Um, you know, Japanese-based manga uh, and the derivations of that across are huge, right? And, yes, there's the Hello Kitties and stuff, but put aside the ones that you might recognise as the cutesy little ones. But, you know, I'm talking about the fact that there is literally manga for everything, right? I mean, one of the most popular manga in Japan in the last few years is a, a continuing series about an 80-year-old woman who just rediscovers her sex life. And what is manga? Sorry, manga Manga is the Japanese form of cartoons. Different than anime? Uh, anime, anime is is uh, animations. That's, that's on TV. So anime is basically the animated version of the cartoon books. So yeah. just like... Marvel movies grew out of the comic books that, you know, that when I was young we were reading, da-da-da, and with the TV series and movies, it's the same thing, right? Now, manga expanded out of Japan really rapidly about 25 years ago, and we saw things like Dragon Ball Z really become a major hit across Asia um, and, and other uh, one, uh, series since then have really take off. Now, they become a an undercurrent of things, right? So you have that going on. 
Um, in more recent times, you have you mentioned it before, the K-pop revolution, right? So, you know, this was a government policy by the Korean government to popularise Korean brands by popularising Korean pop culture, right? So they went to the biggest corporations in Korea in the 90s and they said the six, seven big chaebols, the big, big corporations in Korea who all own uh, music studios, TV studios, they made cars and all sorts of stuff, but they also own TV studios and they would make soap operas in Korea for Koreans. And they said, look, we want you to go to Vietnam, to go to the Philippines, to go to Indonesia, to go to Thailand, to go to China and go to the TV stations and give them programming. In fact, if you have to, pay them to run your TV shows. Why? Because the more people get used to Korea as a cool place, the more they're going to feel good about buying Korean brands. So they work together that way. And so it started with soap soap operas uh, out of Korea and then K-pop. And, of course, now we have things like BTS and arguably, you know, like one of the biggest bands or maybe the biggest band in the world for the last couple of years, um, now sort of in semi-breakup for a while. But I just... You know, one of one of their main one of the main guys has just had a number one hit across Asia. You know, in the last couple of weeks, right? So, um, ah. so so that's that will continue, and that that's sort of happening um, where you have Asia based pop culture affecting young people, and then of course in more the more recent times and the most recent times, the big thing is mobile gaming. So across Asia, but particularly in Southeast Asia, the statistics say that for people under 30, the number one medium that they engage in every day is mobile games, as in the amount of time they put into it. And it's and it's usually somewhere between three to four hours a day, every day, playing mobile games. And so more and more marketers and business people are now starting to, you know, we think of, sometimes we think of gaming as, entertainment, we don't think of it as media uh, in the same way that we may think of television as media, right? Um, But mobile gaming is a medium. And increasingly what we're seeing is uh, companies are going to have to start thinking if they want to reach young Asia, they're going to have to do their messaging inside games uh, because that's the medium that they participated. That's right. the, the thing they're really interested in. Right. Okay. So let me take that and package that together with maybe a little bit of my question around technology forward for brands entering Japan. I kind of think. And let me just ask you for Southeast Asia. Then, um, what technology? I'll just say technology. Take that anywhere. VR. However you want to do that. Um, what technology would you be bullish on? as a vehicle to drive market growth in Southeast Asia for brands? Mobile games. Okay. Seriously, mobile games. Yeah. I mean, it, that's, where all, that's, where the, that's where the eyeballs are. That's where the thumbs are. That's where the, in the engagement is, right? You know, a lot of talk again in this year um, as we've – different markets coming out of COVID, there's been a lot of talk around the world about the, the attention economy, something that – Todd, you'd probably remember us talking about the t- attention economy 15, 20 years ago, right? Yeah, but yeah, yeah. It's it, it sort of come back in a huge way in the last 12 months because of that realisation that when we're all locked at home and sitting in our houses for two months or three months or five months, 
it seemed like it was easy to get people's attention, right? Because they had nothing else to do. And now, well, now, now they're out. Well, the truth is, you know, that if you want to get people's attention, young, young people, particularly in Asia, um, the thing they're paying attention to is this, the screen on their mobile phone, and they're playing games on it, right? So get in there and, and explore that. And, and I, I, you know, it's everything from we're starting to see, again, the, the idea of placing products inside games is not you. You know, we, we've been doing that and we've been buying the rights to do that for 20, 25 years. That's, that's not a big deal. But the, the, it's, the, it's the thing like the in-game chat boards, Right. Um, so for, for most people in young, young people in Asia, the number one social mediums are the in-game chat boards. Right. That's that's where they do all their real conversations. That's where their friends are formed. Right. Um, and so whether you're doing market research in those boards or actually marketing in those boards, um, that's that's a big growth area. What about fatigue? Because, I mean, I think one of the fascinating things about marketing is that we're always um, chasing humans um, and humans are always changing, which makes it a never ending uh, game that everyone can always play, despite, you know, for a thousand, ten thousand years. Right. Essentially, things haven't changed, as you said, right off the top. Right. Um but essentially, we we generally have fatigue, right? And so we that's you know we we constantly have to keep up with that. Um, is this something that um, is very prevalent in that area of the world, like decision fatigue or product placement fatigue, or right, right, right? You know, yes and no. In terms of, I think there's from the practitioner side of the business person. There's always this desire, like, oh, and a misconception. Oh, we've got to have the new, the new thing. We've got to have the new campaign. We've got to have the, We've got to launch the next product. Exactly. Because yeah. people are bored with us. People are bored with us. But, but you know, then when you look at the numbers and you find out in nearly every category, yes, it might be an advantage to have a repertoire. You know, five or six flavors. But the truth is, two flavors will always sell you 80, 85, 90 percent of all your product, right? And the other ones are just it's sort of just gloss to gain a bit of interest, but people return back to the core, right? Um, I think the the problem with fatigue is quite often it's perceived as fatigue. But we, we perceive fatigue where it's not necessarily there. We look for fatigue. Um, and that's because when you're in business, you've got to be justifying doing something, right? And you've got to be doing something new. And so we have this constant sort of, Thing. Now, don't get me wrong, you know, uh, Asian com- uh, uh, companies do this as much as anybody else, and you have Asian business cultures that define things as you've got to have, you've got to go out there and splash things out. I mean, for example, Japanese companies, the big FMCG companies, right, are famous for the fact that they throw out lots more new products than a typical American FMCG company, right? But then the spirit they do it is differently. When when a big American company decides to put out um, a new flavor of potato chips, um, or a new toothbrush that's got a thinner head on it, or something like that, right? The inside the company that's got to be seen. That's got to be a profit center. Okay, every every new launch has got to be a profit center. Whereas the Japanese mindset is, we don't care if nine out of ten fail. Well, that's that's not the thing. 
we're just doing it to throw them out there to see what sticks, right? Uh, and so there's a very different attitude sometimes with some of that stuff, right? Yeah. But to go back to your question about fatigue, I think one of the things is, and we again, you know, the crucible of the last couple, two or three years has really forced some of these issues about the fact that we're finding out that people um, seem to be fatigued because they're bored, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's not necessarily that they are really fed up with something or they don't they, they want something else. It's just, hey, you know, I, I'm bored. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so whether it's the new product or a new way of describing the product or just generating some new interest in, in the product, that continually becomes important because we're swamped with stuff, right? And, and you know, there's this big thing in uh, academia about um, uh, mental availability. That's the big language now for marketing over the last five years has been the, the growth of this concept of mental availability, right? And, and mental availability is just making sure that your your product, your your message, whatever, is just constantly in people's faces, right? It's it, You don't know when to – I don't know when Todd is going to feel like a beer. I don't know, right? So so I can't – so what I have to do is to make sure that, you know, he's sort of mentally aware of Labatt's the whole time, Right. Uh, mentally aware of Labatt's the whole time. And and if he's mentally aware of Labatt's, there's a good chance the next day when he goes to the bar, he'll say, yeah, give me a blue. You know, so... <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it's uh, you. You went you went deep into the Canadian subculture on that one, and I appreciate yeah, that yeah, very well, much. Yeah. Um, yeah, I used to really really enjoy my Labats. Um, <laughs> of course, as a as a fully uh, fledged member, card carrying member of the drinking age of Canada, for sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting. So, you know, talking about eyeballs in the attention economy, is there anything unique? that you could talk to those brand owners that are listening, thinking about moving to, to Asia um, that they need to be cognizant of where attention is great. Attention attached to wallet better and how we get that into the wallet. Is there unique things that we need to be considering in that area of the world? Yeah. I, you know, it's very easy to be part of a fad or to get some people talking. Right. Yeah. Uh, But, but, as you say, the, the, uh, as a business, I don't care if people talk about me. What I care about is they talk about me and desire me and then do something about it, right? Um, and so one of the things is uh, being careful about messaging or product delivery, et cetera, that is, oh, it's cute, it's fun. It's, it's, that's a really interesting thing in itself, just the message. Um, and not putting it really in the context of usage. Um, so I, I don't mean that in terms of, you know, making a, making a TV commercial or making a film showing people using it. I mean, what are you doing in actually to get across to people to, in the right places um, so that the word gets out there? You know, um, you know, we sometimes belittle in modern worlds, but sampling, for example, is really important. Right, sampling in the right place in the right segment, and it doesn't matter what it is. Right, it, you, you could be talking about toothbrushes, and you can be talking about uh, you know electronic cars, right? Electric cars. You know, um, I was last night having a drink with a couple of friends of mine. Uh, one of them has just come back uh, from a bit of a road trip, 
uh, somebody had got him to use an electric car for the first time. Uh, and so an electric car company basically said, da 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 we'll, we'll lend you one for five days for your road trip, right? And now he was blown away. So he sat in this bar last night with three or four other guys and gave a 20-minute sales pitch for electric cars. For right? another company, yeah. For, for, you know, right? And it's Completely because, unaffiliated, yeah. Yeah, completely unaffiliated, right? It's, and it's a bit of a story how come he got offered this thing. It doesn't matter, right? It's just that thing that – and we all know the, the single most powerful medium in the world to get your brand success is word of mouth, right, is – people who like your product or your service talking to other people about why they like it and getting them to try it, right? Like there's nothing better than, hey, you know, this chocolate bar is great. Here, take a piece, you know, try that. It's fantastic, right? So that's a that's a truism. It's age old, but it's truly effective today. And one of the things, of course, that we did see in, you know, interesting, if you think about the food, the general food and beverage marketplace, you know, across the world, but especially here in Asia, we saw – um, the different home delivery food services like Grab, Food Panda, etc., were very, very good at then offering experiential things for other products, right? So, you know, sampling situation. So you go and order your, your meal off Food Panda, but there's a there's a toothbrush or a, or a sample of a new toothpaste in it, right? So eat the food and then brush your teeth with this. Well, those are great ways for getting people to actually think about like converting it right oh, yeah i'm going to do something about that yeah and it's yeah. The, then the other thing too is is just making it easier you know again southeast asia the companies like amazon of course in some markets lazada which is the big uh online uh, retail site in in southeast asia um you know they've gone through a lot of learning about mm. making sure that how easy is it to purchase? How easy is it to ask questions about it? How easy is it to get a refund if it goes wrong, for example? How easy is it to get endorsements, et cetera, et cetera, to get people talking about it? Um, these are things that, you know, have changed the dynamic of stuff, and it's meant that traditional retailers have had to then rethink a lot of the, the services they're doing, you know, and, and how do they compete with that? I've got you for a maximum of about nine minutes left here. So I want to, uh, and I'm getting through about 20% of my talking points per high level topic here. Thanks very much. You're going to have to come back. We have to revisit all these high topics and high level topics and get back into the ground. Anytime. But for now, I, I'm going to ask this question. Uh, and now that you and I are seeing each other face to face, you know, for, for the first time, um, this is going to be an interesting way that I put this, but I want to talk about talking about the uh, silver uh, population uh, talking about because you put a ton of importance on that on that cohort on that group of of consumer and I just want you to tell us at first why do you put a lot of focus on older consumers and 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 what and why and how brands need to to be really sure. paying attention and resonating with those that consumer class. Sure. Well, you know, I've been interested in the aging population issue since 1988, and there's a long story why why that happened, but. As I moved to Asia and became more involved in marketing in Asia and looking at the Asian context of things, as I said, Japan, oldest country in the world, uh, you know, over the last 10, 15 years, Korea, Hong Kong, Taiwan, have all been in that sort of top 10 countries for not only longevity, but also the proportion of the population that's old, right, or older, right? We're now in a world where 
very soon we're going to get to the point where 25% of the pop- world's population is over 60. Um, we're in a situation where you have big markets like Japan where that's that happened years ago, right? Um, China's very close to that. But the other thing I always like to point out is when we think of Asia, sometimes, you know, particularly in the West, we think of, oh, it's young populations. And we think of that because of places like Vietnam, Indonesia, India, you know, and, and you'll always hear this thing, and it's true, you know, like, or well, 70% of the population's under 35 or whatever, right? It, okay. Those three countries, for example, Indonesia, Vietnam, and, and India, 10% of the population is over 60, and it's the fastest growing segment of the population. In nearly every country across Asia, the fastest growing segment of the population are people over 60. People are having fewer kids, and at the same time, more people are living longer. So what happens then, right? We live in a world driven by 1950s, mostly American marketing rules, which says, go for the teenager, get them while they're young, you know. Now, when you actually look at it, we now find out, well, there's almost no evidence that if you get them when they're young, that they actually stick. It, it, that people don't stay with the same brands for, for 30, 40 years. They go back to that that mathematical equation of cost of customer acquisition versus lifetime value. And that lifetime value is made up of length of time. So yeah. naturally, you think they're going to default to young uh, very you know, simply uh, until they talk to you and get the nuances of it. But, the, you know, one of the problems with that model is, is in simple terms, young people don't have money, right? Young people buy cheap stuff. And I'll tell you the thing that really turned me on to this. Uh, end of the 90s, I was living here in Thailand and I was working for uh, one of my clients was one of America's biggest automobile companies. And they were, they were literally building a factory on the outskirts of Bangkok. Uh, they were going to get into the... Um, uh, the market in a heavy way in Southeast Asia with particular models of cars. And so one of the things we did was we we went around and I had a couple of people who worked for me and they took me around to dealerships just to talk to dealers, right? And one Thai dealer said to me, we were talking about different cars and different people coming in and stuff, and he goes, oh, well, the truth is, you know, unless you're over over 50, I don't really care. And of course, I, well, what do you mean, right? Well, of course, we sell lots of cars to people in their 20s and 30s and 40s. Of course we do. But it's the guy over 50 that we really we really worry about. Why? Because the guy over 50 buys the more expensive cars. The guy over 50 at or 55 or 60, depending on the country, is at that age where the kids have grown up and maybe for the first time in their adult life they can actually buy the car they want, not the car that they needed for the family thing. They're not looking at the family drive, right? They're looking at it's. They're looking at the pickup truck with that with the guts, or they're looking for a more sporty looking car, etc. And that's where the margins are. And so we, I took that on board, and then started looking at a lot of other categories and discovered, wait a minute, in the travel industry, guess what? I worked, as you said, Cafe Pacific, American Airlines. I worked for a lot of airlines doing their advertising, right? And, of course, it's a truism in advertising that really they don't care about anybody in the back of the plane because they don't make any money from the people on the back of the plane. They make the money from the, the people paying full fares. Now, who pays full fares? People over 50, over 60, right? 
Young people don't. So the margins on targeting people over 60 is much higher in category after category. The other thing is there's a giant misconception about marketers that says, ah, yeah, but people over 60 never buys new stuff. That might have been true 50 years ago when even in America, for example, people died by the time they were 72, 73. If you're a Japanese woman who's, who's turned 60 today, on average, you will live to be 97, right? There's more and more awareness across Asia that, hey, you know what? We're going to live to be in our 90s. So at 60, what am I going to do with the next 30, 40 years? And we're not going to just do the same stuff and we're not going to use we're not going to use the same pair of shoes for the next 40 years, right? We're not going to use the same toothbrush. We're going to keep on buying stuff. But the other thing, of course, is, and maybe a little bit more in Asia than it is in the West, we sometimes forget that people in Asia that are, say, in their early 60s have lived a lifetime of constant change, of constant exposure to new stuff, of adapting to new things. Now, we sometimes have this stereotype that everybody who's over 60 can't adapt to stuff. No, 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 it's quite the opposite. In fact, uh, MIT and other institutions have sort of shown that people in their 60s are as adaptable and probably have adapted to more new technologies than people under 30, right? Because people under 30, there has been no major new new technology for 25 years, right? Well, there has been nothing new to adapt to. They've grown up with the internet. They've yeah. grown up with mobile phones. Yeah. Their parents and their grandparents were the ones that had to adapt, right? And so when you take that on board, yeah, and so when you take that on board, that's why the future is all about aging populations, the positive future is. Okay, thank you. Um, I am going to come to you for a couple of recommendations. But before I do that, there's one topic. We've never talked about this on the show before, and – I'm not sure if it has anything to do with, you know, the silver uh, market um, and where they spend some of, m- more of their time than young people. And it is not a commentary on where we think the state of the world is going in today's economy. But I want to talk about toilets and I want to talk to you to talk to me about how you got involved with toilets and what are you up to in the toilet space right now? Ah. <laughs> uh- <laughs> okay, toilets. I, I give a lot of talk at conferences uh, and stuff, right? And and I have a, to- a, a talk that's called My Mum's Throne Room, which was uh, – it, it's actually about um, – I use toilets as a symbol. And I talk about toilets in society and the way in which people think about toilets and the importance of toilets. You may not know this, for example, that uh, if you live in a, house, in a home in most parts of Asia that has does not have an indoor toilet, and then you put an indoor toilet into that home, uh, the chances of the women in your home being raped in their lives is reduced by 90%. Um, The number one condition for getting raped in Asia is having to use outdoor toilets, right? Yeah, think about it, right? Having to walk walk the foot to 20, 30, 40, 50 feet to the toilet or the pit down in the field is a danger zone, right? Uh, it also drastically reduces the chance of infant mortality. Uh, it reduces lifespan. It increases lifespan. So there's a whole bunch of statistics around that. But actually, it came about because I was doing some research at, at first here in Thailand, but then in other major cities where we're looking at 
families that have moved from the rural areas to the big city in the last few years and what they really thought was important. And when we did an experiment where we said, take photos of the stuff that you would miss the most, if everything around your apartment or your little house disappeared, I was blown away because everybody took photos of their toilets, right? And the reason they said that was, and remember, these are people that have lived in villages, right? And they've moved to the city and they said, look, back in the village, all my cousins have a TV set. Some have refrigerators. If you can steal electricity, you can have those things, right? But none of them have a flushing toilet. And actually, we then did some work and explored the idea that the defining technology of being being middle class for 200 years now has been an indoor flushing toilet. It's the single technology that changes lives the most, and it's also the symbol of a changed life more than any other. So that's why I talk about toilets. I I love it. Um, And and I'm sure water treatment probably followed quickly after that. I know yes. it was, you know, yeah, Bill, yeah. Bill Gates and, you know, everything got into that. Okay. Uh, Dave, really appreciate that. Can you, would you mind throwing a couple of your friends under the bus and dropping just a couple of names of some guests that we can uh, go after and say, Hey, Dave recommended you for the show. And he actually did it on air. Okay. Uh, under the bus um, <laughs> in Japan, in Japan. Uh, okay. There's a, a guy named Jesper Cole. He's German originally. He's lived in Japan for 30 plus years. He's one of the leading economists in the country. Uh, he's been advisor to prime ministers and all sorts of people up there. And he's probably the number one guy that can explain the positive side of, of the Japanese economy and how the Japanese economy and its effect on people and marketing really works. Okay. Um, so great guy to have a talk to him. Brilliant. Probably if you think about there's a really interesting guy in India, and I know you, you know, you, you're more sort of East Asia focused. There's a friend of mine in India, a guy named Previn Shikhar. Now, Previn actually's history was he set up and, and runs and owns a couple of market research agencies that specialize in the healthcare. But actually, what he's done in the last few years is he acts as a consultant on what he would call guerrilla marketing, right? And he he travels around working with smaller companies around Asia, helping them understand how to think differently about marketing, uh, not in the big scale, not, not in the big, you know, let's let's put a $5 million ad campaign together. Let's have to do things small in different ways. He's a really clever guy, um, really brings some real insight into day-to-day small businesses, right, and how small businesses can shift things and then how other bigger businesses can take advantage of those shifts. Okay. Awesome. Dave, thanks very much. Um, to everybody who's watching the video, please um, keep in mind that we have the audio version as a podcast over on like Stitcher and Spotify and Apple Podcasts and everywhere that you get your podcasts. And for those listening on audio, we also have this on video. Please uh, like and subscribe and share and tell us what you think and obviously get in touch if you ever want to have any influence and commentary on what we do here at The Negotiation. For now, that's going to bring us to the end. Dave McCoggan, thank you very much. Uh, founder and storyteller at Bibliosexual. Dave, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks very much for having me. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.